It's nice to be back. It's also our hearts are still connected to what we're doing there, so it's kind of a funny thing, you know, because you want to stay to follow that more, and you want to be here to follow this more, and uh, one thing is true, we've never chosen the road that's easy, have we? Always the road, always the road less travelled. Um, I was quite fascinated today, because um, I want Chris to kind of fill in a few um, details about, about how we're seeing the shape of things emerge, um, you know, particularly in the Salt Lake journey and the other journeys, because we've, um, you know, we've been up in Bellingham, Washington, and uh, trying to help walk some things through um, through in that church. But um, uh, it fascinated me today how the, how much revelation we've had that goes back a long time now. And what I wanted to talk about tonight is a a little revision, and because it's important, I couldn't believe when I looked at it, we first talked about here in 2014, now it's 2018, four years ago, um, and it's still, it's still very fresh in my spirit, but, um, but it was quite a while ago, and some of this stuff I think we need to regurgitate, you know, at least online, because uh, uh, what you do see when you're going around is that people are not hearing this stuff. And uh, a lot of people have been so infused with fear um, because they want to protect uh, a comfortable, familiar place that, that actually they, they reject any attempt to move them on to another revelation. So I commend you. I think, I think you're very special people. I think we have a, a very special house. You know, the number of people who say horrible things about Rob Bell who've never even read a Rob Bell book... You know, and that's many people never listened to anything he's ever said. But somebody said that somebody else has said that somebody else said. And uh, it's not healthy. And um, uh, by and large, there's, there's a couple of things. In terms of, in terms of its internal workings, you could argue that there's parts of the church that's very healthy. But in terms of the church being the church, it's very often not healthy at all. And it, it's, it's, it's a little bit incestuous in... Um, in how it works and how it functions, <clears throat> you know, pleasing itself among itself and then convincing itself that it's, uh, it's doing big things and changing the world, you know. And even in America, of course, we, we've got a lot of connections with uh, America. Um, there are more megachurches now and bigger megachurches than there have ever been, but church attendance is at the lowest it's ever been. So you have to say, so the reality is that whatever it is that's making the megachurches is not making a difference to the, to the unchurched or the, or, the, or the people who've walked away from church. It's, actually, it's just actually more pulling the resources into, into bigger and bigger places where we can kind of just make everybody happy. And I'm, I'm for megachurch. I think megachurch is fine. It's not my thing, just like cruise liners are a... A significant thing in the world, but cruise liners are not tugboats or icebreakers or fishing boats. They are what they are. And sometimes I'm jealous because, um, you know, you say, would you rather speak to, to a thousand than a hundred? And of course the answer is absolutely yes, but um, depends which thousand you're speaking to um, and which hundred you're speaking to as to what difference one is making. So, so yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to I wanted to revise a little bit on this because I think it it's it is still where we are and some will have forgotten, some will remember. <clears throat> but it also directly relates to what we're seeing emerging in in as we move into Salt Lake and um and the various connections that we have, and I'll let Chris bring in a little bit on that and discipline myself not to talk too long. And uh what I have to talk about really comes from two major portions of scripture. And um, they're very rich in their revelation and, and, uh, and, and powerful in their instruction. Um, but one of the stories, well, both the story and the Old Testament chapter that we're going to look at, I'm, I'm convinced like, like I've encountered too much in the church, the, the topical view of it really doesn't take into account what the real message is because the topical view is comfortable. The real message is uncomfortable and that's often the case. Often the case with Jesus and, um, uh, and it's the case with this. And uh, um, what I want to talk about is the, um, <clears throat> this encounter in the desert with a guy called Philip and, and a guy who we're told is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, the two scriptures I'm going to use are separated by 800 years, but they are connected by one common message. 
And the one common message is that individuals matter. And, um, you know, just saying this, I, mean, I won't fill you on all the story, but, but I, I felt in the same way that I felt very clear we were to change the queue, and in the same way I felt very clear uh, about how we were being led to, to pitch a tent in, in Salt Lake, I felt very clearly God asked me a question this time because I was thinking, well, we haven't started a church, we, we haven't even got the essence of starting a church, and are we supposed to start a church? And in my spirit, whether it was God or whether it was my imagination or what it was, was very poignant. Uh, I think it was a God thing. And the question was, how much would you invest if you were given the grounds to start a church in Salt Lake City? And uh, I thought, well, we'd invest whatever we felt was necessary because that would be the clear leading. And then the next question was interesting. How much would you invest if you're only in Salt Lake City for 10 individual people? And then you start to think, oh, you know, people get the point if you say we're going to plant a church and reach all these people. And really what that shows is that we will be committed to a thing, a project, often more than we are concerned about individual people and reaching them. And this, this, these two stories really deal with that. So I'm just going to talk briefly because I, I want to paint the picture um, of this thing. So, so the base of the story is in Acts chapter 8. And, um, you know, the, the guys there in Jerusalem are now being scattered. And so they're spreading the message in various places. And this, this guy called Philip, who, who wasn't particularly designated an apostle, because people like to give titles that, well, he was an evangelist, etc. When really, I don't care. All that matters is Philip, this guy, got something in his spirit. And uh, so he went into, into this area of Judea called Samaria, which in itself was interesting because... You know, anybody that's been around a while will know the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. Now, basically, the Samaritans were of Jewish stock, but they were of the wrong tribes to, to the, the, the Judah tribes, which were the two, two main tribes. They were, they were kind of from the long bloodline, and uh, they were also a little bit more interbred with other people from around. So, of course, the Jews, doing the typical religious thing, had nothing to do with the Samaritans because they weren't pure enough. Uh, they weren't the right people to hang out with. Uh, because the, the great essence of the gospel should always be that it goes to the people that we said are the outcasts, the ones who are the outsiders, the ones who are not in. Uh, and so Philip, Philip moses off down to Samaria and um, he... Uh, he starts bringing the message of Christ, their message of resurrection. It's well received. He has a good response and uh, things are going really well. And then, um, and then he hears God say something to him, which in, in two ways is very challenging because in, in old church money, he was, he'd got a bit of a revival going on in Samaria. Things were going really well. And it's like now, now God speaks to him in the middle of what? outwardly looks like success and says, walk away from that because I've got something I need you to do. So, so it's, Philip's led into this situation where he'll encounter this guy who is on his way home from what would have been a difficult and probably distressing experience, and that experience was he's been to church. And not just any church, but but in the context of the story, the biggest and the best. He's been down to Jerusalem to the temple. Now, so, so here's, here's, let me just pick up in verse, in verse 26. It says, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is like the M1 between, because it was just a chariot, that dusty road. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, again, the, 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 the things here are rich because it doesn't say he'd gone to Jerusalem on a diplomatic mission on behalf of the Ethiopian government. It actually says the reason he was in Jerusalem was primarily because he'd gone to worship. Here we've got a classic a classic example of a, of a searcher or a seeker who is looking for truth. Now, yeah, he, 
he was a dignitary in one sense, but, but he's, the reason he's there, according to this, is because he's gone down to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is where we have the problem that, you know, nice Christianity will say he went down to Jerusalem and bless him. He was there and then he's on his way back and Philip met him in the desert and he's looking for Jesus and Philip introduces him to Jesus and the man gives his life to Jesus and he baptizes him and he goes back and starts a revival in Ethiopia. That's the, that's the clean version. The, the real version is that, that there was a problem troubling this man's mind. Um, it was a problem that was compounded by the church that he'd visited, not, not eased by the church, because several things. Number one, he was a man of colour. He was a black man from Ethiopia. And uh, the problem was that, that um, when, when, when Peter one time suggested that, that coloured people were in, it, it started a riot in one of the communities because they were so upset by the whole thing in, in, in Acts 21... So he was a man of colour, he was an outsider for that reason. He was a Gentile, a Gentile was a non-Jew and the Jews had very strong feelings about the Gentile and to qualify as a Jew it was very specific. So there was this exclusivity by which you could only be inclusive if you had done certain things and followed certain rules and, and you had been told that you were in <clears throat> but you were never fully in unless you were blood-born. He, he, the terminology that they use... Now, think, think, think of all the trouble of the N-word in, in America and in the black community. You know which word I'm talking about, the N-word. Well, the Jews had the D-word. If you weren't a Jew, in private conversation, you were known as a dog. Which was the same as if we now use the N-word about... about about uh, black people that we know, Afro-Caribbeans or whatever, or Africans, uh, we, that would be most distasteful, it would be racist. Well, they were racist because they used the D word when they were talking about anybody that was... A, Gentile was the nice word you'd use in public. But the D word was the one they used in private. He's a dog, he's an outsider. And they didn't see those people as being worth much more than a dog. And uh, the problem was that that as, as such, as a man of colour, as a, as a Gentile, he could go to the temple, but he couldn't actually get right into the inner circle. So, uh, you know, again, this is one of my issues over the law and Judaism in the law, is that they had a court in the temple courtyards that was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, it all sounds very nice. Oh, we've even done a special place for the Gentiles. What it really was, it's, like, it's really segregation. It's really apartheid. That imagine, I'm going to use this term now. Imagine if we were to say, you know, um, um, uh, different ethnicities are welcome here. Indian, Asian, African. Um, but you can only meet in the back hall. We can't actually let you come in here. And you mustn't come through here to get to the back hall. You must go by the back entrance and you must leave by the back entrance. And at no time must you come through here. This is horrible. But that's what legalism, that's what the law, that's what institutional religion will do. On the face, on the face, it'll give you all this nonsense about, oh, we're so inclusive and we just accept and this is a church for everybody. Uh, I want to see when... There are people there that contravene what you would prefer. Then we'll decide whether it's the church that accepts everybody. So, so you would have been in the court of the Gentiles, this outside place. It was a non-subtle way of saying, you're not one of us. You're not really welcome here. But there was an even bigger problem than that, which is that this man was a eunuch. Now, you know, this... Again, we don't use that terminology these days because we don't encounter it, but, but this was a, um, a cultural thing that, that, that predates this story by centuries. I mean, you can go all the way back into Mesopotamian and Arcadian and Sumerian culture to find this business of eunuch. Basically, um, it was castration. You would castrate uh, the person in order that they might be of a higher service. Now, some castration is just I don't mean to be rude, but took the testicles. Other castrations took the whole lot, you know. Um, needless to say, most eunuchs finished up bald. 
they finished up with a very high voice and a hairless body because they were no longer producing testosterone as they would have done with all the male stuff functioning. And so they were, you know, they were distinct and they were different. Now, there are a couple of aspects to that. Some people chose to be eunuchs to enter the, a priestly service. Um, but mostly eunuchs were chosen. Imagine that. You've been chosen to be a eunuch. Thank you. So, it, it wasn't uncommon, but it was certainly unacceptable in the church. So, I mean, I'm going to show you a few scriptures from the Old Testament that show that, that, that if you were this way, you actually were not accepted in a legalistic, institutionalized setup. But before that, let me say this, that, that, that the overtones of this relate to human sexuality. And it's many issues... The overriding message, given all these factors, was we cannot and will not accept or engage with people in your condition. We have scripture to back us up, and unless you change, we cannot and will not be identified with you. That's the, that's the underlying thing that probably wouldn't be said out publicly, but you sure knew that, that there was this exclusivity. Particularly with things that we can't get to grips with or we don't understand and somehow we lose our compassion, and instead of defending a person in compassion, we begin to defend the law that condemns that person, that the whole thing of Jesus and the woman in the act of, caught in the act of adultery and all that was relating to that, but I won't go into that. So, in Deuteronomy, in the, the old law, Deuteronomy 23, there was a problem over missing bits. It's, this is what it says, listen, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 23, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, that doesn't mean, you know, crushing your finger or, you know, cutting your knee, I think you get that. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No eunuch is to, this is how it puts it in the message, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. Which sounds fine if you're a purist, let's keep the house of the Lord pure. If you're a eunuch... It doesn't sound quite so good. Leviticus 21 verse 18, all these wonderful scriptures. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who has damaged testicles, that's one of the things. Verse 21, he must not come near to offer the food of, of his God. Verse 23, because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. So my question is, and looking at that, we'll, we'll deal with the, the context of that in a moment, what I think about that is, is what was the man's experience down in Jerusalem? I mean, he's on a hiding to nothing. We've got this wonderful story in the New Testament that Christians are happy to quote, and you know, the eunuch was, it's like, yeah, but he'd just been to church. The, the reason the guy is hurting, the reason the guy has so many questions, the reason the guy needs somebody to explain something to him because he's just been to church. And what he's experienced in church has left him feeling rejected, unaccepted, and unable to understand the, the, the gospel or the goodness of a God that, that was being worshipped by all these people who actually, for some reason, couldn't engage with him. Now, I wrote this. The sad thing was, like it or not, this person could do absolutely nothing to change any aspect of his condition. God's saying to Philip, I want you to reach someone who in others' interpretation of Scripture and the holiness of God would say is excluded unless he changes. This is the root of this story. This guy is excluded unless he changes according to a certain application of Scripture that you cannot get around, but somehow God sends Philip to deal with this person, to reach this person. So, so we've got this problem. Unless the rules relating to his exclusion are overruled, he has no hope. Now, the truth is, if, if you want to be heavy on, you know, um, particularly Old Testament Scripture, then, then most of us are up the creek without a paddle. Um, you know, you, you, under the condemnation of the law. I mean, when, when Jesus was asked, 
uh, in the law, which is the greatest commandment. And bear in mind, when people tell you the greatest commandment is that, that we're supposed to obey is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're being incorrect. Because the question was, in the law, which are the greatest commandments? So Jesus said, let me summarize the whole law. Because after he said this, he says the whole law and the prophets are summarized in these two statements. So, so here's the deal. If you can get these two right, then you've got all the law right and you've fulfilled all the word of the prophets. If you can get these two right. So he says, and here's the two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength. Screwed straight away. That's all of us failed, right? Mm, fail. And if you say that you have done that, then you're a liar and a hypocrite. All your heart, all your mind, all your strength, everything. That means you cannot de defer from that state at any time. So the moment you got angry with your kids because they rubbed you up the wrong way, you've broken that law. How many times have we done things where we loved ourselves with all our heart, mind, and strength? And sometimes thought we did it in the name of God. And then he says, and if you've done that, the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, now I, I love our neighbors, but I can't say I love our neighbors like I love myself. And of course, the practical reality of that would be you never lock your door, you, never, you, you keep your fridge open if your neighbor comes in and eats your food and goes out and does whatever and drives your car and comes and sunbathes in your garden, comes and gets your clothes out of your wardrobe and wears your clothes and leaves their clothes because they like your clothes better than their clothes. That's loving your neighbor as you love yourself, you see. So, so the whole point of that was you, we, none of us have done it. We don't even need to go any further and yet the issue is we still try to hang on somehow to, to these exclusivity rules, thinking that somehow we have affirmed ourselves as being so holy and so righteous when Jesus was saying, you can't even keep these two, so let that drop for a start. So, so unless the rules relating to his exclusion are overruled, he has no hope. I thank God that the, the rules of the law have been overruled. They've been overruled by a new covenant that is in Christ where he became the fulfillment of all this issue so that we might be set free. And the truth is, that doesn't mean set free from some exclusions, but then we have to impose others upon people. It means we've either been set free of all of it or none of it. And then judgment passes from our hands and the application of some religious law, it passes into the hands of the righteous judge of all men who's already judged those people in, in the body of Christ and said, here's my conclusion, it's finished. Here's the conviction of the Spirit, righteous. So this deal is that this guy lacked the necessary parts to qualify his sincere desire to find the God of grace met with a loud, not welcome here, but probably not a spoken, not welcome here. It was just a clear inclination that you don't fit and we can't accept who you are. So, let's, let's take this a little further. So, this, this is then the story from verse 28. <clears throat> and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it, near it. The interpretation of that being, join this man on this part of his journey. Do you get that? The Spirit didn't say to the man, turn your chariot and go to Samaria. The Spirit said to Philip, not, oh, we've got to get him to join your journey. It's our whole thing, come to church. Become part of us and... And, and we, no, it was the other way around. It was, no, no, you, it's not about them joining your journey. It's about you joining their journey. Now, this is important, but at the end of the day, it's like I said, the issue is, are we trying to build some corporate entity or what value do we place on people and their journey? And I don't mean what value do we place on other people or church people to get them into our church so we can all have value together. I mean, I mean, what value do you place on the people who are not seeing it a certain way, who, who have had imposed upon them or become part of their life things that, that either they had no choice in or they struggled to make a choice over and, and now are just confused and needing help? But so, 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 so it's very important, this, that, 
that Philip said, join this man on this part of his journey. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the Isaiah the prophet. So Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how can I? Well, he was probably reading here, well, in fact, he was reading from Isaiah 55, which is a very well-known, is it 53 or 55? My brain's gone dead on the numbers there. It's all about wounded for our transgression, 53. Wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, chastisement that gives us peace was laid upon him by his wounds we are ill. This is a, an old covenant, Old Testament uh, um, declaration, prophecy that obviously relates and connects in many ways to what was about to come in, in Christ. And uh, I like the guy's question, how can I? In other words, his experience of what was perceived to be the church and his attempts to make sense of what it was he was reading were in conflict with each other. So he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? How can, and I summarise it as this, how can I make any sense of this in the light of the experience that I just had in the temple? And, and, and that tends to be the case. And yeah, yeah, this is a bit of a, grievance of mine so I'm going to just speak me a little grievance for a moment that okay am I allowed only human after all um, I see this a lot in America I've seen it here as well that you know church comes into town particularly if it's a famous church that's already got a name and I've watched this happen to two or three friends of mine uh, in other cities and they move in with 10 families and in six months there's three or four or 500 people in this church and then it's, look how this church is growing. The problem is, I know most of the pastors who were already in the city, who were pastoring the churches in the city, who are now half empty because this church has grown. It's, the truth is it's increased in number but nothing's really grown. In fact, along with it has gone a lot of pain, a lot of distress because what we've done is come in and we've taken what is there and we've made a statement that other people can't do this job in this city. So if we take their people, we can look at least as though we are doing this job. And it does bother me. I don't, I don't think it brings honour on the church. I think the world at large looks on and thinks, you guys are just fooling yourselves. And the truth is, most of the time we are. Now, that, that's not against the people who are involved in doing that because how many have ever said you didn't know any better? Jesus said, forgive them. They know what, what they're doing. And I've been there. I would have happily done that. You know, to some degree, we, we, at one time in our history, we grew a lot. And it actually saddens me now more than it blesses me because what we did was we emptied a church in Ghoul and filled our church here. Now, there may be reasons for that. And, and, and I'm sure that we were a blessing and helped those people. But, but we shouldn't bless the guy in Ghoul. And, and it never crossed my mind for five minutes to either say to them, look, guys, you need to go back. You need to go back, you need to, you need to see this through and we'll help you walk it through. Or to say to the guy, I'm really sorry, this must be breaking your heart. So I was happy because they were all coming to me. It was great. You know, we always seeing all this growth. Now what we were doing was shrinking somebody else's. And, and so I'm giving you very personal. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not putting the, you know, if the cap fits, wear it. The cap fits on me in some of those things. And I, I am... Blessed to have been involved in people's lives and blessed to have helped them, but also feel some guilt about um, the fact that I was happy because it bolstered my ego. It, it made my CV look much better. And uh, when I'm, I'm not sure how, how integrous yeah. I was in the, the whole process. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So, 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 so it's all this business here that's going on of... of you know, the, the light of his experience that he's just had in the temple. What, what does it mean? So, so he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as the lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, the irony was that this eunuch was probably not a unit by choice. And so if you think about it, these scriptures 
personally affected him because they perfectly described the journey of his life, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a lamb before a shearer is silent. He couldn't say anything. In his humiliation as a man, he was deprived of justice. Somebody said they're coming off because we've got a role for you. Deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? Well, think of it. He's a eunuch. This affects him. He can't have any descendants. One of the reasons that they chose eunuchs to look after the king's harem is obvious. Because the girls are safe with the eunuch. Ain't nothing going to happen to the girls. If the eunuch's looking after the pretty girls, nothing going to happen to them. Because he has been deprived of that. They also used to be put in charge of the treasury. The reason being that he had no hope of ever marrying, having a family, having an estate, having descendants. So why did he need money? He might as well just live at the king's table and be fed and have his board and lodgings basically and his needs looked after and given some spiritual credibility because he had no need to rob the king. He couldn't rape the girls. Can you see how what he's reading actually is so... And he's got no answers where he's been. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Now, hyperspirituality, which we've all had plenty, I've had lots. Hyperspirituality says what he was meaning was the prophet talking about himself or of Christ. I think nearer to home is thinking, is this prophet talking about himself or talking about me? Could it be that this guy's talking about me, that he gets it, he understands what I'm struggling with, he understands what I can't change, what I can't deal with. See, now, yeah, in there as well is Christ, because actually Christ understands, and Christ was this, but the eunuch at that point is not thinking, is this the prophet or is this the Christ? The eunuch's thinking, does this guy really get me? Does he understand? Could this be talking about me? A faint glimmer of hope. Says then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So, so the fact that Philip began with that passage of scripture means that Philip didn't stop at that passage of scripture. Do you get that? It's very important. He began at that passage of scripture because he's not going to stop at that passage of scripture, and you'll see why in a moment. And he told him the good news about Jesus. Disqualified, discriminated against, got no bits, can't do a thing to change it, but he's hearing some good news. Now, what Philip said must have changed how this man saw God in the full light of a revelation of how God saw him and he sees himself as in and not out. Now, now I think this is very important because I think when people understand how God sees them, gives them the revelation of who God really is, right? Who God really is doesn't always give you the revelation about yourself, but when you realize how God sees yourself, you get a revelation of, of who, God, who God really is. And so, as they traveled along, it says in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is, is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Good question. And a lot of the becauses can come in there. Well, because of what you are, because under the old law you're not qualified, because you're this orientation or that way or this thing's happened in your life or this is who you are. And then comes one of the shocking things that, that you all should be aware of. That verse 37 is not in the original manuscript. It is not there. It has been put in. Right, is this, is this the NIV, Dan? Yeah, that's, that's correct, right? Now let me tell you what most Bibles, King James, New King James, New American Standard makes note of the fact that it's not in the original manuscript. manuscript. Uh, 84 NIV has it in the, the text, but it has, if you notice there, we go from verse 36 to 38, because there is a 37 in most Bibles, and that verse 37 some of you will be familiar with them. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. There. Yeah. Which one's that, Dan? 37, yeah. Now, I mean, which Bible version? Is that King James? 
Yeah. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what we've added into there is our evangelical condition, condition that, that you don't qualify to be baptized just because you've had a revelation of who God is and you want to be because you're moving on that revelation, you still have to fulfill all these criteria, which is you can only be in if you can confess that you've believed and that you've said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, now I'm not saying that's not important or relevant or significant, but what I'm saying is it is a condition that is very evident from the Scripture here is not an absolute necessity for the revelation of truth and life of God to come. It's one way, but somebody, and think about this, somebody decided, and this makes me mad when people talk about, oh, don't mess with scripture, you know, if you take anything from that book or add anything to that book, it's been going on all the time to suit people's agenda, and the evangelical world has been the worst at it by saying, well, we'll just slip this verse in there, one in the original, but we think you need to know that you can only be baptized if you say this in this way and do this in that way. Whereas Phillips is a much more organic, the guy says, there's some water here, why shouldn't I be baptised? And if you go to the correct next verse, he gave orders to stop the chariot and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. Now, the question would be on so many things, have we introduced conditions that are not there really in Scripture but we have interpreted to be there? So just like the old... Jewish zealots with their, if you've got this problem, that problem, whatever, whatever. Have we introduced things that actually keep people away because we don't let God righteously judge. We take that upon ourselves. And then what usually comes is condemnation. So in the light of Philip's experience with the eunuch, we can now let scripture speak for itself about the extent the game has been changed through the work of Christ on the cross. Remember it says, Philip began with that very passage of scripture. What must this guy have felt then when Philip went on to read further into what we have marked as chapter 56? So Philip began in chapter 53. Who's this talking about? The prophet? Is he talking about himself or someone else, right? Now, how many of you know that when you put chapters in, usually 54 follows 53, and 55 follows 54, and 56 follows 55, right? There were no chapter de delineations, but it's evident this guy is reading the book of Isaiah. Now, he wouldn't be reading 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. He wouldn't be reading Ephesians. He wouldn't be reading the Gospels, because they had not even been written at this time. So the context of his understanding had to come from a, from a, a, a reissuing of, of truth that, that overruled the rules that excluded him. Now the wonderful thing is that's what the gospel does. But we didn't even have to have Matthew, Mark, Luke or John or the epistles or any of the John's letters or whatever to qualify that because Philip doesn't have any of those so he just keeps reading. And basically he's saying, yep, the guy wasn't just talking about himself, he was talking about Christ, and in talking about Christ, he's talking about you. And I know you don't qualify, because I've been raised and I know all this stuff, but I need you to know there's a good news that says you're now in and you're not out. We have no court of the Gentiles here. So listen to how amazing it was in, in chapter 56. We can go back to the NIV for this, I think, Danny, or, um, or New King James, or something else, whatever because I don't even know which version I've written this in. Just, just put me 56 up, verse 1 in the NIV. Let me see whether that starts out in this, or we'll go to the New King James. Uh, yeah, okay. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Now, verses like that terrified the living daylights out of me when I was growing up. Because all I could read was, the Lord says, you better maintain justice and you better do what is right because my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed, which means if you haven't got all that perfectly right, you better know what's coming to you. Sounds like words of judgment if read through the wrong lens. Uh, 
But how many of you know when the eunuch said, here is water, he was doing what is right? He said, now you've told me all that stuff, here is water. He was doing what was right. Now listen. Blessed is the man who does this. The man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Or in other words, the one who doesn't do things that contradict the thing that's celebrated by the Sabbath. The question is, what does keeping the Sabbath mean? It doesn't mean going to church on a Sunday. It doesn't mean even going to church on a Saturday. The Sabbath in creation was the seventh day. That's why you had to keep it holy. Not because it was a church day. You had to keep it holy because you understood what happened on the seventh day. What happened on the seventh day? It says God looked at everything he had done and he rested. Why? Because it says he had finished all the work that he was doing. Honouring the Sabbath is not about putting your best clothes on and coming in to have some communion and sing some songs. Honouring the Sabbath is saying I absolutely accept the finished work of Christ. It is finished is what Christ said on the cross at the end of the sixth day coming into that Sabbath day again. It is finished. That's what it means to respect the Sabbath. So there are a lot of Christians who don't keep the Sabbath. Because we minimize the very thing that is the Sabbath, which is the finished work of Christ. It is finished, okay? The rules have changed. Blessed is the man who does this, who holds it fast, keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Verse 3, let no foreigner, right? Now listen, this is, imagine reading this back to this guy. Let no foreigner, what's the Ethiopian? Who has bound himself to the Lord say, so he's now bound himself to the Lord. Let no foreigner who's bound himself to the Lord say, now Philip's reading this to him, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no foreigner ever say that. Now he's just been excluded. And let not, listen there, let not any eunuch complain. Can you believe that what Philip goes on to read actually talks about eunuchs and God's view of eunuchs. Those who have become something who didn't choose to be that, but it was imposed upon them and they can't do anything about it and they've struggled with the exclusion that that brings. It's actually here and Philip's reading it back to him. He must have been absolutely almost jumping out of the chariot with joy. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, which he's just done, Bound himself to the Lord. The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain and say, I am only a dry tree. That was the, that was the metaphor for not being able to, yeah, being infertile. And the Bible's full of metaphors. I often say to people, you know, it, it, when we're trying to understand Scripture, if I said to you, my feet are killing me, how, how many of you would call an ambulance? And say, quick, send an ambulance. We've got a guy here who's dying. He's, he's dying. There's something wrong with his feet. He's dying. So you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't know exactly what I meant. That actually, I was not dying because of a foot condition. I'm actually meaning my feet are aching. Okay, now, now that's one of the problems. People, people read scripture out of culture and context and those kind of sayings are used. And you imagine if you take that for serious, you'd be then reporting in the Yorkshire press, local pastor is dying because he's got a problem with his feet and nothing could be further from the truth. But you say, but you said, you said my feet are killing me. See, but none of us would, none of us would have a problem understanding that that was only a, a metaphor, would we? So we have to understand that in Scripture. And so I'm only a dry tree is a metaphor of saying, actually, I am infertile. I can't produce anything. For this is what the Lord says. I love this verse 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. So he's tied the two together now. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. If you're one of these people, but you will keep the truth of the finished work in Christ, he says... and. Those who choose what pleases me, because it pleases him for you to rest in his finished work and realize you're not excluded, and hold fast to my covenant, which is that he has promised that he would bring you in, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Now, the one thing you couldn't have as a unit was a memorial and a name, because your generation was ended. 
So here's what he goes on to say. I'll give you a memorial and a name that's better than sons and daughters. Who thought, that, and the reason for that is because the sons and daughters thought they got in, they got it because they were born into it. And so there is, this, there is this complacency that doesn't understand the fullness of it. So he says to these, these eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off, which means that there is a fruitfulness to your life. You're not a second-class citizen. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. That's this guy. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, all who believe in the finished work and who hold fast to my covenant, the promise that says I'll keep what I promised when I said it's finished, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices, which he wasn't allowed to offer in Jerusalem. See how there's a context. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here's a good lesson for all of us. I've quoted this before. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. When I first read this four years ago, I realized that when we talk about Jesus saying, you know, that you've turned my father's house into a, a den of thieves when it will be a house of prayer for all nations, had nothing to do with 24-hour prayer meetings. Absolutely nothing. People say you have to understand the, the, the text by the context, and yet this is a text because people like to do stuff that makes them feel holy and spiritual, and that's not an accusation. Anybody who loves to pray, it's good to pray. It's right to pray. I'm just bringing a, a particular context on this in the sense that, that if we think that what is taught here is that we should pray 24 hours a day because God's house is a house of prayer, we've missed the context. The reason it's a house of prayer for all nations that be called that is because of the level to which it accepts the eunuch and the foreigner and the outcast. So therefore, my conclusion is Isaiah is saying the greatest prayer that can ever go out of this house to God is the level of inclusivity that we incorporate into our reception of people who we have understood that the finished work works for them. And that's how we honour the finished work, by that inclusion, that acceptance, that belonging that says there's inheritance for you that is here. That's truly what is a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares this, He who has gathered the exiles of Israel, I will gather others, still others to them besides those already gathered. In other words, this thing is bigger than, and it goes beyond anything you have ever imagined, and the ones who are being gathered are people like this, who we said were out. So, let me just conclude it with this. The guy was still black, he was still a Gentile, he was still a foreigner, he was still being called a dog, he was still a eunuch, and could do, couldn't change one element of any of it. Not one single one of those things could he change. The wonder of grace lies within its revelation of acceptance outside of anything that, that, than God's unconditional love towards me. That's the truth of it. That's why I like, you know, we don't sing a lot of old hymns, but there's a great line in one old hymn that says, Praise with us the God of grace. Because it is expressing and re revealing this wonderful truth that when there's still this and when there hasn't been changed, that they are in and accepted and loved and part of and we're able to walk along with them and we have truth that goes along with it. So all of this happened because God values people above institutions. I don't think God gives two hoots about Q. I think he gives two hoots about Hillsong or anybody else. I think what God gives two hoots about is individuals that, that are reaching. And, 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 and my point in this was not just to re-teach re that, because I think it's a great lesson, again, of the values that we have in this house and what we believe about the individual and how we will be towards the individual and how we will truly have a Sabbath and we'll truly have a house of prayer because we're going to live in the finished work and our prayer will be that, look, we've accepted. But it's the issue of the value that says, I'll move you for the one. Yeah. And it's still, you know, we, 
uh, I find it fascinating, just one little thought, and then and I want Chris to share kind of how this connects to, to our journey. Um, I, I absolutely love the song, um, uh, which is the song that I absolutely love. Thank <laughs> you. Um, because I, I, I think it's the one that speaks our language the most at the moment, so will I. You know, when it talks about the billions of stars and the wonders, and, and if, if creation sings your praises, so will I. And it, it talks about, you know, the, the, the billions. That What's the word about, um, the one about a billion things? Animals. No, disappear. Oh, our failures. failures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a thousand million failures disappear. What I find fascinating is most people that I see refer to this song only remember one part of it, which is uh, he's, he's the one who doesn't leave the one behind. Which is true, but what it misses is the immensity that goes before that. The whole point of the song is about 100 billion stars and a God who's big enough to do that and 100 billion failures disappearing. Because, yeah, yeah. And, and, and about animals catching his breath. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder whether our one who doesn't leave the one behind is... It sounds great, but I asked a question in Bellingham this week. I said... I said, you know, whatever you say you believe, I want to ask you a question, do you believe what you say you believe? Because inclusivity is a wonderful principle that all of us would say we would believe, but I have to ask people the question, do you believe what you say you believe? Because until you're at this point, we actually don't believe what we say we'll believe. So anyway, um, point is in this, having just retaught that because I thought it was a good value to lay is that is the, the wonder to me that would you do this for one person? You know, I, 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 have, a, I have a feeling that, and, and this is not totally true, I'm using it as a, a kind of a metaphor, allegory type of picture, that there was a point in my life here that God lost interest in the church because he was too focused on healing me. Now, because that's not true, in essence, because he was all in, all, also interested in, in healing you. But, but actually, there was a point where God could care less whether this as an institution succeeded in the essence of this as a person needed saving. And I think we've walked that and witnessed that, and there's been an importance to that. And that really is our ethos, and it's what we're about, and I'm grateful to God for it. And, and it's, it's this principle that I believe, strangely enough, we are now seeing unfold much more than anything in our journey of faith and all that we're doing. So anyway, I wanted to share that with you. I hope, that, awesome. hope that's been okay.